pursuing the truth, living in love. Veritas is a grassroots network of Catholic young adults growing together in Christ. For more information or to see a schedule of Veritas events, visit catholicveritas.com. That's catholicveritas.com. Today's podcast is an encore presentation of Growing in the Face of Scandal by Veritas co-founder John Johnson. Originally given at Monk's Cellar in September of 2018, John has subsequently presented this material at conferences across the country. He holds degrees from St. Mary's College and the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology and served at the parish level as Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministry for over a decade. He is now the Associate Director of the Avila Institute. In this episode, John discusses apostolic betrayal in the light of the recent sexual abuse scandals. More importantly, he discusses how our response should be modeled after that of St. John the Beloved Disciple to the treachery of Judas. Through this response, we may regain the hope and healing which can always be found in Christ. Let's tune in. Okay, welcome everybody. Let's begin together in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, Son of Mary, we ask you to bless the fruits of our labor, which we offer unto the praise and glory of your name. Unite us, Lord, at this very moment in the simplicity of your love. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to heal. Mother Mary, we consecrate all of our work, all of our efforts, our families, our parishes, our dioceses to your immaculate heart. As we pray together, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So welcome, everybody, and thank you for coming to this breakout session. My name is John Johnson. I work for the Avila Institute. If you haven't heard of the Avila Institute, it's one of the best-kept secrets in Christendom. I mean, it's really, it's really great. It's a Catholic formation for lay priests and religious. We serve thousands in over 60 countries, uh, and it's all online. It's all completely affordable, and it's totally interactive. Uh, so it's not just like you're watching recordings of Catholic formation. You are interacting with other students around the world, interacting with your teachers. There's pamphlets on your, on your desk if you want to check it out. And if you hear anything in this session that you like, um, I'm going to be starting a class, a six-week class, that will greatly expound on what we're going to be covering today. So that's the plug. I had to get out of the way. Where will that be? Where will what be? The six-week class. It's all online. All online. Yep. It starts in early May, I believe. It goes once a week. And if you have questions after about that, I'd be happy to talk to you, give you my card. So today we're going to talk a little bit about scandal and how to deal with it. And scandal comes in many forms, many shapes, many sizes. Uh, I remember one time years ago when I was doing youth ministry and leading a retreat with young people. Uh, so there was a priest there who was there for the first time, and there were a bunch of 
teenagers, many baby Catholics, let's put it that way. But they knew which way was up. And the priest came and he did something at Mass that was, shall we say, liturgically innovative uh, in a way that I had all these teenagers sort of looking at me like, uh, what do we do? And I'm like, oh my goodness. In my heart, I'm like, what should I do? If I obviously can't say, Father, that's, of course, that's wrong. You know, you can't do that. Uh, because that would have been a scandal to these young people. So what did I do? I kept my mouth shut and I got through it. And I was just sort of petrified and everybody was looking around at each other awkwardly. One young lady came up to me right after that. And I didn't know what I should, what should I try to talk to these kids? Should I tell them what happened, what didn't happen? One young lady comes up to me after that and says, John, that wasn't right, was it? And even at that moment, I couldn't say to her, of course that wasn't right, was what I wanted to say, right? But all I could say to her was, his sheep hear his voice. His sheep hear his voice. Because she knew. And that was a really benign issue, a minor issue. And then on the other side of the spectrum of scandal, we have these things we hear about in the news that just break our hearts. I mean, one story that particularly affected me, I heard of a high-ranking priest uh, who would violate young men and then give them as a gift, a, a demonic parody of a gift, really, a golden cross to wear to signify to the other priests that that young man was available for further violation. Right? And you could probably think of your own horror stories that you've heard of that just break your heart. And everything in between. And even some of you, I would say every one of you in this room in some way has been a victim of scandal. Even if it's just through public hearing of these horror stories. But really scandal has this technical theological meaning that is a stone of stumbling, a scandal on, an obstacle. Each one of us in this room has been adversely affected, or let's just say hurt, by somebody who's a Catholic. Is that right? Everybody can say amen to that. Amen. And the flip side of that is that each one of us in this room has been a cause of scandal to another. In, in little ways, in big ways, but if you have hurt somebody else in any way who knows you are a Catholic, then in some way, even if it's just a little pebble of stumbling, you've hurt somebody, right? And so scandal is a two-way street. And as humans, as Catholics, it's difficult to avoid it. And to understand scandal, we have to go back to the Gospels because it's as old as the churches. It's as old as the churches. St. John, the beloved disciple, he wrote the last gospel, and he could see really into the church throughout time and space. He could see to the end of time, so he wrote the book of Revelation, whereas Luke's gospel starts with the infancy narrative. Matthew's gospel starts with uh, the genealogy, Mark's gospel starts with John the Baptist. Where does St. John's gospel start? In the beginning. 
St. John's Gospel starts in the very contemplative life of God. And for that reason, he has a sort of bird's eye view, an eagle's eye view. He can see. And it's as if St. Luke, because St. Luke, he knows, he knows all this stuff that's going on in Mary's heart, right? Where does he get all this stuff? Remember, Luke's not a Jew. He's really writing as a, as a historian. Where does he get all of this information about what's going on in Mary's heart? Luke's was the third gospel to be written. What is his source as a journalist? That's what he is. Mary herself. He interviewed her. And with whom was she living when he interviewed her? St. John. And the gospel is the last thing that St. John writes. And it's as if he waited for Luke's gospel to be published. Reads the account. It says, very good, Luke. But there's more to be told. There's more to be told. So, St. John is writing, of course, as a bishop in the early church to clear up certain doctrinal issues about 100 A.D. He's also writing as a bishop in the church universal. So if he can tell you what happens at the end of time, you better believe he can tell you what's happening right now. Okay? In, in order to understand the language of St. John, there's a certain code that we need to unlock. And I don't want to get all Gnostic-y or New Age-y and tell you that there's like this Nostradamus-style code, but really St. John is writing in Greek, and he's writing with what Aristotle calls the most powerful form of rhetoric. And it's very likely that St. John was a student of Aristotle, um, you know, in the pipeline at least. And the good news is that in the last five or ten years, how many of you have a social media account or Facebook? Okay, if you've ever spent any time on Facebook or Twitter or anything, then you've actually been trained, without knowing it, to read St. John's Gospel. No joke. Why? How many of you know what a meme is? Does anybody not know what a meme is? Okay, great. So you probably do, you just don't know what they're called. A meme is an image, like a powerful image, that has a caption, but with like an unfinished question behind it. So the famous one is this little three-year-old boy who's like pumping his fist in victory, and there'll be a caption that says, ace the test. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, three-year-old boy, ace the test, right? And you have two premises in a syllogism. That is this happy young boy is given to you as knowledge, and this... Uh, statement, ace the test, is given to his knowledge. And with this combination of images and words, you are able to deduce what? He did well and it feels awesome to ace a test, right? Okay. Aristotle calls this uh, an enthymeme, which is where we get our word for meme. Enthymeme is the most powerful form of rhetoric. And it's when you get an incomplete syllogism that you are left to figure out for yourself. And don't worry, this, this is, uh, we're gonna get through this little technical bit and then get into scandal, but it's very important. Okay, let's do an enthymeme. 
A equals B. It's premise one. Premise two, B equals C. Therefore, you know enthymemes. Good. But if I were to just start that by telling you, hey, everybody, listen up. A equals C. You'd look at me funny. Or if I were to say, hey, everybody, guess what? Feels great to ace a test. Big deal. But when you are given an incomplete syllogism and left to figure it out yourself, then it mimetically becomes yours. It becomes something you know, it becomes something you love, it becomes something you're able to share. And enthymemes are, are, are in John's gospel by the dozens and dozens and dozens. They're everywhere. And now that you know how to spot them, you're going to read John's, read John's gospel with new eyes. Here's an example. John 6, 57. Premise one, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. Premise two, so he who eats me will live because of me. So you have two premises and an incomplete syllogism. What's the conclusion? If you eat him and he lives because of the Father, then when you eat him, finish it. What is it? Then you live because of the Father. Then you live because of the Father. Again, another one. John 20, 21. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So two premises, major premise, major, minor premise, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you, concluded. The Father has sent you. You get it? Okay, good. And these are everywhere in John's Gospel. And there's a particularly powerful enthymeme that spans all of John's Gospel that's totally relevant to our topic today. And if we look at John's prologue, we can see, right? You all know John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. In him was life and the light of men. I'm going to fast forward for the sake of time for the last, to the last verse in the prologue of John. And I want you to underline it, internalize it, memorize it. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Okay, no one has ever seen God, but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. This is the first premise to this overarching enthymeme of St. John. So you don't, again, it's just a premise, so you don't have to get it just yet, but the goal is you will by the end of this talk. I want you to put yourself in the upper room where the church first experienced apostolic betrayal. And really when we're talking about scandal, especially the scandal that hurts the most, we're talking about apostolic betrayal. Because if you hung around me long enough, 
through this conference, you know, you would get to know me and be like, oh, that guy's a messy eater, he's kind of rude. You know, this guy shouldn't have been a Catholic speaker here, right, or something. I would scandalize you in little ways, but big deal. I'm just a guy. But when your bishop shows you, and your bishop's great here, actually. I heard his homily yesterday. It was amazing. But when a bishop hurts you, it's a hurt of a different level of magnitude. Is that right? Okay, good. And of course we all know that there is among the 12 a traitor. His name is Judas. Okay. Now what I want to point out by reading these different snippets of John's gospel is that 10 apostles in that upper room, even until the end, 10 apostles have no idea what Judas is up to. Okay? Most of the church cannot see Judas. And let me just extend that to John's book of Revelation. Most of the church cannot recognize the Antichrist. You've all seen the painting, maybe by Signorelli, of the Antichrist. It's this beautiful Renaissance painting when this, when this sort of creepy-looking Jesus, something that looks like Jesus, is being manipulated by the devil. If you haven't seen it, you can look it up. Signorelli's Antichrist. In John's book of Revelation, he describes two creatures. He describes a beast and a lamb. And the end of time is this huge cosmic battle between the beast and the lamb. And if you read the book of Revelation, because we could all think, right, oh, clearly the beast is going to be obvious, you know, you know be you know, spitting fire out his nose and have horns and everything. No, no, no. If you read John's Revelation, the beast and the lamb look virtually identical. Many heads, many horns, many eyes. They both give a mark. And so to think, we can just tell the difference between the beast and the lamb when ten of the apostles themselves could not we need to re-examine this. There's one apostle from the very beginning who sees Judas for who he is. And in the upper room, he sees Judas for who he is. And his response is one that we have to internalize. So let's start the first time when Judas and John have this little, this little interchange. And it's John 6 in the Bread of Life Discourse. I want you to start at John 6, 33. To set the stage, right? Jesus had been working miracles. Okay? And people had been following him everywhere. He had raised the dead. He had cured the sick. He had given sight to the blind. And they're following him intrigued they follow him across the water and they're like okay what is the punchline what's the punchline jesus like give give us give us the goods here let's go to 32 jesus said to them truly truly i say to you it was not moses who gave you bread from heaven my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And like you, they said, like you would say, they said, Okay, Lord, give us this bread always. And now Jesus says something here in 35 that is 
scandalous. So the first scandalizer in the gospel is Jesus himself. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me I will not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Now the Jews, like us, we murmur. They murmured at him. They say, okay, you're the bread of life. But that's a metaphor, right? How many of you have seen uh, the old Mel Gibson movie, not The Passion, but Apocalypto? Okay, what's happening in Apocalypto is what's happening in, I think, Aztec or Mayan sacrifice, that they're slaughtering like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of people a day for religious purposes. When we think of human sacrifice and cannibalism, this is like taboo for us. Like, okay, nobody does that. In Christ's day, everybody did that. Everybody did that except for three cultures in the world. You know which three cultures in the world would have nothing to do with ritual sacrifice and cannibalism? The Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans. The three civilized cultures. So when Jesus starts talking about consuming his flesh, it's not like this was a foreign concept to them at all. Rather, it's what those people out in the sticks do. And we don't do that here, Jesus. You got the wrong crowd. We're not barbarians. So they murmur. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? By the way, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? This is a rendition. I mean, in Matthew's gospel, they say, is this not Jesus, the son of the carpenter? Mm -hmm. But it's a joke in scripture, because if you read the, the Greek or the Latin, quiesces, filius fabri. Isn't this Jesus, son of the maker? Carpenter is maker, architect on us. Isn't this Jesus, the son of the maker, right? It's like, it's hilarious. Okay, so Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. I'm going to fast forward to 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. By the way, what is manna? What is it? What is it? What is it? What does that mean? What is it? Uh, another joke. Manna literally means, what is it? So they get this stuff out of the sky, and they're like, manna. Okay? No, really, that's what it means. And so, but what does this tell us? First, Eucharistically, like, the church is meant to be sustained in mystery. The church is meant to be sustained in mystery. We are not meant to live by bread alone, by transitive goods alone. 
We are sustained in mystery. 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. That a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's doubling down. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, why is blood a problem for the Jews? If you go back to Leviticus, you know, if you ever had a kosher meal, no blood in that animal. Why? Because the blood conveys the very life, the very essence of that animal. And if you were to consume the blood of an animal, you would be lowering yourself to unite in the nature of that animal. You'd be lowering yourself to a bestial level. So for the Jews, consuming a blood is an utter scandal. But you see the trick here. If blood is the life force of a thing that communicates its very nature to the thing that eats or drinks it, what is Christ doing? He's offering his very nature. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 6.53 So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now here's something remarkable happens in St. John's Gospel that's only visible in the Greek. But it's easy. You can see the difference here. Up until this point, Christ has been using a rather generic term for eat. That is to consume. The Greek is uh, phagein, phagete. Like if I say, hey, you guys are all consuming my word. You're eating, you're eating this up, right? You guys are eating it up, right? Like clearly, I'm not slicing off my flesh and giving it to you to eat. You get, you get the figure of speech. But then in John 6:54, Christ does something remarkable and downright scandalous. And he says, he who eats, he changes the verb to trogain. Trogo, which is a very distinct word that is to gnaw, to munch, to crunch, to eat as beasts eat, like a cow would chew her cud. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats troge in my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I live in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. There's an enthymeme. He who eats trogain, me, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate, phagine, old eat, and died. He who eats trogain, this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. John's telling us Capernaum is the perfect crossroads in the world between these three cultures, Jewish, Greek, and Roman. They would have abhorred and been totally scandalized by the Eucharist. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's an understatement. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. 
the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And here John, for the first time, points us to Judas. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew for the, for the first, from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that should betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now here's John 6, 6, 6. It's the only time this appears in the Gospels at least. Of course, John did not write chapter and verse, but it's also the case that Catholics are not allowed to believe in coincidence. So the same author of the book of Revelation says that the mark shall be a number, number is 666, and here's John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. So they go back to their former way. There's the way of the beast. And Jesus turned to the twelve, he turns to you, and he says, Will you also go away? Now Peter's answer is interesting because Peter doesn't say, Are you kidding me? Transubstantiation. I got it. This is easy. Makes sense, right? Substance, uh, access, piece of cake. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? That is, I don't get it, but you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus, again, were pointed to Judas. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, the one of the twelve, was to betray him. Now pay attention, because what happens when Jesus gives this undeniable explanation, like very clear the real presence of the Eucharist. Like this is not a metaphor. This is, this is actually, we are actually eating his flesh and actually drinking his blood. And if we don't, we don't have eternal life. This is how life is communicated to us in our fleshly nature. And most leave, right? And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, it's a parable, guys, parable. That's Jesus, a parable, you know, that's, right? What does he do? He turns to Peter and he says, will you leave me too? Now, what about Judas? John's telling us that at this moment, in his heart, he goes away with the crowd. He is scandalized by this. He doesn't believe. He stops believing. Remember, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means a dagger man. That is, Judas was a, really, a political activist of his day. He was among those who wanted to see a return to the temporal kingdom, a freedom from temporal oppression of the Romans. When the, when the crowd leaves, Judas stays, but he leaves in his heart. And so we have the first example of a bishop faking it. And the, and the fundamental meeting point of this scandal is the Eucharist. He does not believe in the real presence. This is at the heart of all scandal in the church today. Is a disregard of the Holy Eucharist, a denial of the Holy Eucharist. But hey, I got a good gig. I have a driver. I have a cook. People say nice things to me wherever I go. I get paid. I don't really know how to do anything else. So I'm going to fake it to make it. This is at the heart of the, church, of the church's crisis today. John 12, we meet Judas again. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 days' wages and given to the poor? Have we heard something like that before? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box he used to take what was, in, what was put into it. But Jesus says, and it's so beautiful, Jesus is so gentle with him. Like this is the Jesus who calls Peter Satan when he crosses him, right? But here's this, such a merciful, such a gentle, subtle rebuke of Judas. Let her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I was talking to a priest just the other day from a different diocese. And he says, you know, I went to say mass at this other parish and they had like these basically like plastic chalices and glass bowls and everything was just so ugly. And I said, why don't you have gold chalices? And the priest said, well, we spend that money on the poor, you know, social justice things. What does Bethany mean? Anybody know what Bethany means? Literally the poor town, town of the poor. So here we have Jesus in the poor town. I don't know what you could compare that to here, like the inner city of Camden or something. Is that what, it, I don't know, okay. I've heard terrible things. They're like, I said, I'm going to Camden. They're like, don't actually go to Camden. I said, okay, all right. <laughs> Noted. So Jesus is in the poorest part of the world, right? In the poorest part of his world, anyway. And, uh, and, he, and he had just raised a poor person from the dead, and here this poor woman is pouring out all of her livelihood to do what? Adore him. And Judas is indignant at her what? At her adoration. Have you seen the divide in your parish between what, we call, what they call themselves the social justice crowd and the adoration crowd? Okay. And I am not saying, I'm not saying at all, that social justice and caring for the transitive needs of Christ himself, who is the least of these, who is the poorest of these, I'm not saying that that is not to be done. On the contrary, on the contrary, it must be rooted in adoration. It must be rooted in adoration. And here we see this primal divide. And it might be inside bait. Do we have any priests in the room by chance? Okay. So philosophically, it's very easy to spot that Judas is lying. How do we know Judas is lying when he says, what about the poor? Because it is impossible to love anything in the abstract. It is impossible to love in the abstract. We know in the abstract, we can only love a particular. Before this talk, I did not want coffee as such. I wanted a cup of coffee, that I, like a particular cup of coffee that I drank. Or uh, you cannot love humanity. People talk like this, right? I love all of humanity, but this jerk right here. 
right? Like, my brother, you know? Like, but I love humanity, but I don't love the guy sitting next to me on the bus, right? Okay? It's fake. You can't love anything in the abstract. So when Judah says, but, but, but what about the poor? What about the marginalized? And he's got three of them right in front of him offering worship to Christ. And he's indignant at their adoration. You know he's lying. But ten of the apostles do not. You could imagine them like Peter and, and James and Bartholomew. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a great point. What about the poor? This is a costly nard here, right? But John sees. Finally, you put yourself in the upper room back to this moment when the deeds of Judas are finally revealed. And Jesus washes their feet. John uh, 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So now Jesus is being so definitive that he's really finishing his own enthymemes. To receive Christ is to receive the Father. When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, who's that? St. John, was lying in the bosom of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned to him and said, Tell us of whom he speaks. So lying thus close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? I need to point out a couple of things here. If you can imagine yourself in the upper room, just do it right now with us. You're the apostles. And Jesus says to you, okay, one of you is going to betray me. One of you in this room is going to offer me up unto death. Imagine what would happen to the room. Do you think they would be like, hmm, wonder who it could be? No, what would happen in that room? Oh, it's not me. You know, that shifty-eyed James over there. I bet it's him, right? And Peter's going, oh, who is it, right? And in the midst of this chaos, this cacophony, like it really resembles the church the church's chaos today in many ways. And Peter gets this bright idea. Sometimes Peter gets a bright idea. And Peter sees, while everybody's fighting and pointing fingers and yelling and like, oh shoot, I hope he doesn't think it's me. Peter sees something remarkable in that room. He sees the adoration of John. Because while everybody's pointing fingers and yelling and screaming, John is quietly resting in our Lord's bosom. And our Lord is quietly resting with John. And Peter's like, oh. And Peter turns to John while everybody's fighting in this cacophony. And Peter says, who is it? Who is it? We read this, we think Peter gets up and says, who is it? No, it's all done secretly. Peter says, who is it? Now John probably just wants to continue in adoration. But what do we see here? We see John obeying the principality of Peter. 
John says, okay, I will respond to Peter. So he asks our Lord. He obeys Peter. Remember, John represents the Catholic faithful throughout time and space. Peter represents the Catholic hierarchy, the papacy, the bishops. And John says to our Lord in obedience to Peter, okay, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. It's very important. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was willing to tell him, buy what we need for the feast. Or they should give something to, again, the poor, social justice. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out and it was night. That's it. Now pay attention because what do we see there? John asks a question in secret and our Lord responds in secret. Jesus does not get up on the table and say, Amen, I say to you, who I dip the morsel with, he's the one. It's he responds in secret, and none of the others knew what he was talking about. Now, John has a choice here. John knows, John sees in action what Judas is about to do. John knows that it's Judas, and everybody else wants to know who it is. And what does John do? He continues to silently adore he cannot respond to Peter. What would happen if John responded to Peter? It would have been a Quentin Tarantino movie. Right? Luke tells us these men were armed. They had swords. Peter has a sword. And there's something in us that in the face of scandal, we want to be like, it's Judas! Get him! Right? And hammer away on our Facebook and our blogs and this guy's a heretic, and that guy's a heretic. But John understands that the blood that must be shed is not that of Judas. It's that of Christ. And so John adores in the bosom of Christ. We've got two choices when we're scandalized by the church authority. And most people fall, fall on one of these two choices, Right? As we see, they will leave the church en masse. They will, they will leave, that is, in, in, in mass exodus. Right now we're seeing it. Per capita, we have half the number of priests we did in 1965. Young people, where are they going? People are leaving the church en masse, in droves. Or, many are staying, but they're really angry. They're outraged. They're writing angry letters to their chancellor. What St. John is telling us here is that both of those extremes are a mistake. Both of those are being, scan you're being scandalized. And that's why, whereas Judas, uh, Judas goes out because it is night, turns away from our Lord, even Peter and the other ten are scandalized by the cross. They cannot follow him to the cross. Because they too are scandalized in the opposite direction. Only the beloved disciple John can, can go to the cross 
with the women. Because he has a response to this betraying act of Judas, and that response is adoration. Where is John when he's resting in Christ? He's resting in the bosom of Christ. And hopefully we can see, remember the beginning, when I pointed out the beginning of this mega enthymeme? No one has seen God except for the Son of God who is where? In the bosom of the Father. In the bosom of the Father. The same exact word John uses here. Your, your translation might have like laying on the breast. No, it's in kolpos, where you keep your most treasured items. Jesus, uh, John is resting in the bosom of Christ, and so is resting in the bosom of the Father, and finally, and so can make him known. You want to talk about the joy of the gospel? You want to talk about making Christ known, revitalizing your church? That does not start with any social program. That sure as heck does not start with any committee in your chancery. That does not start with, uh, you know, some great blog you just read on the internet. That does not start with an outreach program to the marginalized and to you, blah, blah, blah. That does not start with a great pancake breakfast. That starts with your adoration. And if it is not rooted in your adoration, then I beg you in the name of God to stop. Cease and desist. The church is not a social ministry program. Your social ministry efforts will be utterly impotent and even counterproductive and scandalous to you ultimately if they are not rooted in adoration. I know this is a hard saying. I know this is a hard saying. But if you look at the places in the church where adoration is the most frequent, well-populated, what do you see? You see young families galore. You see the greatest social programs. You see the greatest fellowship. You actually get greeted by people who want you to be at their church naturally without them having to form a committee. Hello, welcome. Hello, welcome. Hello. We have a greeter committee. What says I'm not welcome more than you having to put somebody here to robotically greet me? If you get adoration right, you get everything right. In the upper room, everybody has the same mission. This is very important. The mission is to convey Christ, is to spread the gospel. And Jesus is giving this great commission. This is what we call tradition, to hand on. I gotta use my whiteboard for this. Tradition comes from the Latin word tradere. T-R-A-D-E-R-E, tradere, that is to hand on the real, to hand on the truth, to hand on Christ. But this word in Greek, same thing, paradidinoi, same thing. This word is, is one of the only words in the Latin language and in the Greek language that has a uh, completely like the same identical double meaning. This is how we translate tradition to hand on. This is also how we translate betrayal to hand over. Every apostle in that upper room 
is being charged with a commission to hand on Jesus. And you, by virtue of your baptism, have been charged with the commission to hand on Jesus. And handing him on looks virtually identical to the, to the eyes of this world as handing him over. Handing him on looks exactly like handing him over. What's the difference? We have to decide if we're handing him on for the good of the recipient or if we're handing him over for our own good. And I'm sorry to say it, but the church has too often become a place of me, a place of community, a place of everything but Christ who so thirsts to save us. We have got to return. This is an echo of Christ before he's scourged in the praetorium. We, it's all about the community. We have no God but Caesar, and this guy's a problem for our community. And the mystical body will go the way of his body. The bride will go the way of her husband. But as, and if you hear, if you hear these words and you think, well, what can I do? Because we all want something to do. Of course, the first is adore. Just rest in his bosom. That chapel over there, three doors down, should never be empty. Number two, if we look at this last episode in the gospel on the last page here, And this is, remember, John's writing as a, as a bishop for the church universal. He's writing on behalf of the faithful throughout all space and time. This last part of John's gospel is thoroughly eschatological. That is, he's telling us something here about the end of the church, the end of the world. It's the third time Jesus appears. Of course, the church doesn't end. I misspoke. But he's telling us about how things will end in this, in this earth. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. By the way, what year is John writing? 99, 100 AD? All the people he just listed, where were they? In the dirt. John outlived them all. Okay. And, he, and he's writing about them. It's very important how he writes about them. Peter, Peter, so funny. What is he going to do? He says, I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And you imagine John there. You think John wants to go fishing right now? You think he wants to go back to his old way? John, but what's he going to do? He's going to obey Peter. Just like when he runs to the tomb. He runs faster the faithful, you will always run faster to that tomb than the hierarchy. But at the same time, we have to stop like John and wait. We wait for Peter. So they go fishing. They got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that was Jesus. And Jesus says to them, children, have you caught any fish? They answer him, no. If, how many of you have been fishing before? 
And like, what's the most annoying question after a rough day? You catch anything, right? And you have, you've been there for like all day. No, you know, next guy, you catch anything? No, okay. So Jesus, they can't see who it is, right? At least most of them can. I believe John can, but he keeps his mouth shut. Jesus says, you catch anything? And Peter just says flatly, no. And then he says, uh, it's like if you're fishing. So he says, well, what are you using for bait, right? <laughs> it's like, dude. <coughs> so he says, he gives him advice. It's hilarious, right? Okay, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. They still don't know who he is. But again, Peter has this, like, okay, where else do we have to go here? So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. And so imagine Peter, he's aggravated at this guy from the beach, asking him a question, he doesn't know who it is. He finally takes the guy's advice, he gets a big catch, and he's like, woo, look at all this stuff I got, look at all these fish I got. And it's like this scene in a movie where you're like talking about somebody who you don't realize is right behind you. And Peter's sort of in this, you know, frenzy of confusion and, you know, chaos, emotion, all this stuff. And, uh, and John says, uh, John finally decides to speak up. The faithful finally decide to speak up just a little bit, very gently, very charitably. But it was time for John to say one thing. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Peter, it's the Lord. And what, is, what does he do? <laughs> when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work, and sprang into the sea. Who puts on their clothes right before they jump into the ocean? <laughs> Peter does. But he was lightly clad, like, like he smelled a little bit too much like the sheep. And John says, it is the Lord. Redone your regalia. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off, implying they're not far from the end. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish laying on it and bread. So Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They came and took the bread and gave it to him. And so with the fish. This is again a thoroughly Eucharistic illusion. Thoroughly Eucharistic. You have the risen Lord Jesus in a tabernacle 30 yards from here. Do you recognize him? And why are you in here listening to me if you do? <laughs> we have better places to be. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... Now, this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. A couple things I want to point out here in closing. 
Peter jumps off the boat before it hits land. What could we imply from that? And again, we need to be very clear that what we could imply from that is not in any way de fide, but we're welcome to guess, we're welcome to speculate, because we know that that boat gets to the shore, but its captain had just jumped off of it. How does the boat get to shore? Somebody, right? Somebody's got to steer that ship to the beach. Maybe it's John, right? He's like, ah, Peter's off. Hold my beer, right? I'm like, okay. Maybe somebody else, right? But somebody gets that boat to the shore. And this could, this could very well be an analogy for the church in these last days. St. Lucia of Fatima said that the final battle between heaven and hell will be over what? The family. It will concern the laity. This is the final battle. And we know who wins the final battle, right? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. We just don't know whose side we're going to be on when it's over. We could flee for fear of the wolves. We could be scandalized. We could scandalize. We could go the way of Judas to his own place. And it's foolish to think that we are immune from that. It's foolish to think we are immune from that. The second thing I want to I encourage you with as we end here is this notion that the nets were so full but they did not tear. The nets were so full but they did not tear. John is giving us an image of the church in the last days. And he says something that's really par parallel to that when he depicts the crucifixion of our Lord. He says very clearly that the bones do not break. The nets do not tear. The bones do not break. But if you've seen, you know, like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, if you've read the saints' mystical accounts of the Passion of our Lord, then what do you know? What happens to our Lord's shoulder when he's crucified? It's dislocated. But when you dislocate a shoulder, the bones don't break. It might look like, it might, to the naked eye, you're like, whoa, that guy just broke his arm. The bones don't break. And, what, and the nets don't tear and the bones don't break. John is promising us that the fundamental doctrinal integrity of the Catholic Church will last until the end. The integrity of the mystical body of Christ will last without being broken, without being torn. But to us, it might look a whole lot like, oh, those nets are going to break. Oh, that bone just broke. Not so. And so as messy as things get, we can be confident that we're on the right boat. Even if our captain jumps off of it, the boat's going to get to shore because ultimately it is Christ who is pulling that boat to the shore. And it's our mission now, right? Joyfully. It is our mission joyfully while there is still time to make him known because the world is so thirsty to know him. But more so, he thirsts. He thirsts. In his saving hour, he says, I thirst. 
That's right. He thirsts for souls. He thirsts to draw all men to himself. And if we can adore with the beloved disciple and so be in his bosom, and so be in the bosom of the Father, then we can persevere to and through the cross. And we can see the risen Lord before anybody else does. And only then, only then, can we make him known. Only then can we make him known. But that begins with this bosom-to-bosom, heart-to-heart encounter that is a secret between friends that we call adoration and is the one thing necessary. Unum necessarium est is the one thing necessary. And if you get that right, everything will be given to you in abundance. The church promises you this. Okay. Are there any questions or anybody discussion? Yes, please. Um, I'm passionate about evangelization and always begin and end with adoration. But recently, I'm, I'm thinking that we need to reach out to the Catholics who have left because of the scandal in the church. Yes. Any suggestions on how, I mean, besides beginning an adoration, of course. Yeah. You know, because we have these Catholics that all of a sudden disappeared, like in September when the Pennsylvania yeah, I do. I do have a practical suggestion. And um, it's true. So many people are leaving the church because of the sex abuse crisis. But young people especially, besides that, um, are leaving the, the church. And this, I'm going to be talking about this on my next breakout session. But because we have abandoned beauty. We don't love... Beauty. We've abandoned beauty. And so, you know, if, if your average Joe from the street were to walk in on any parish mass and see what's happening and say, okay, how seriously do these people take this stuff that they're telling me is the one true faith and where I should be welcomed into and come back to? And if he says, how, 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 okay, how seriously do these people take this stuff? What's the typical guy on the street going to tend to do, right? And we have a golden opportunity as Catholics because say what you will about millennials, but they have a taste for beauty. That's why there's this, the hipster movement, and they don't want Folgers coffee. They want the most off-the-beaten-path boutique coffee they can find because it's more beautiful than your run-of-the-mill base coffee. They don't want to look like everybody else. They want to, you know, grow the beard and have the finest beard balm, right? There's a new generation that is craving authenticity, and they can smell, they can smell the inauthentic from a mile away. They can see your fake greeter committee. Oh, welcome, well, right? They can see it from a mile away. They want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with it. And so we're repealing Catholics in, in huge numbers just by not taking seriously what we are calling the height, source, and summit of our faith. It's like the old story of, uh, you know, the Muslim guy who sees a guy, says, there's a tabernacle, there's Jesus himself in it. And they keep walking. The Muslim guy says, well, if that's really who you say it is, how could you ever leave? How could you ever leave? 
You know, conversely, of course, you have the story of, uh, what's the Southern author's name, the hillbilly Thomist uh, female? She, huh? Flannery O'Connor, yeah. Her husband, Flannery O'Connor's husband was a Protestant, and, but she was always Catholic. He followed her to church, you know. And then one day, late in life, this guy says, you know what? I'm going to become Catholic. And they're like, wow, you, you're going to become Catholic? What is it? It must be the stirring homilies you get. It's like, no, it's like the worst preaching I've ever heard. <laughs> and they say, well, then surely, surely it's the welcoming community. Yeah. It's like, no chance. You guys are so rude. <laughs> surely it's the music. Are you kidding? The music, oh, right? Yeah. So what, if all this stuff is so bad, why are you becoming Catholic? He says, well, it's simple. All that stuff is so bad, but people keep showing up. <laughs> so there must be something real in that tabernacle. And that's, that's sort of, you know, the, the, double, the, the double effect of, of this hope we have. Like, we are our own worst enemy, but he is not, and he is faithful. And he's going to be in that room two doors down until somebody comes and visits him, quietly waiting. And as St. Elizabeth of the Trinity says, if we can respond to that silent invitation and be alone with the alone, be alone with the alone, this alone will change our church, will revitalize it, will draw people back in droves, uh, will we'll frankly bring the reign of Satan down until he comes again. It was said of St. John Vianney that if there were just two priests in the world, as holy as he was at that time, it would have brought the reign of Satan to an end. There's 50 of us in this room. Yes. I, I commend you in saying that you have to go to adoration to Jesus because people don't realize that you do not, you know, yes, these priests have done you know, these horrible things, but it's not all priests, so we can't condemn yes. all priests. People have to realize that we have to see the good because of the evil to everything. Amen. 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 I can't say it better than that. Yes. In order to reach the word that you were talking about, besides the, uh, um, the attack on marriages, and the other one is the abortion because God is suffering. God gives us life, and therefore, if we kill a born baby after nine months, that's murder. And uh, that's the cries of Jesus at this moment, in addition to marriages. And uh, we should not be Christ. And the only battle is the rosary. Amen. Uh, let me just yeah, say, the rosary is uh, deeply powerful. Like, deeply powerful. And, and it can, if, if you don't pray the rosary every day, I'm sure most of you do. But if you don't, I'd encourage you to. Yes. Yes, on the subject of authenticity yes. and the young people, uh, I understand the lesson you're teaching us about John adoring Jesus and passing to Jesus for saying, you know, it was Jesus. Yes. Okay, however, Jesus also said when Judas went out and hung himself, it had been better, Jesus said, yes. that man had never been born. Yes. Now, in terms of authenticity with the young people, and the scandal in the church, believe me, they are looking at yes. 
bring out the priests in this diocese, they're naming and encouraging. Right. 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 However, you step up to the next level. Yep. The bishops that allowed it to happen, they're questioning that. Yep. Yep. Because, for example, I'm not saying it's the case, but in authenticity, for example, let's say that Bishop Hughes or Bishop Damiano were one of the ones, hypothetically, yep. that had let the priest get away, they're going to say, why do you keep the name of Damiano on school or Hughes on school? Right. Yeah. I think they want to go a little deeper in. Yeah, um, you know, there's so much we could say there. The, the church has done a terrible job of just practically, uh, you know, being shepherds, right? Being administrators. Like the psalm says, put not your trust in princes. And princes are administrators. Princes are bishops. They're terrible, right? I mean, sorry, I was being recorded. They're sometimes terrible, ah, ah, right? But we see... Uh, that if the Jews won't take care of their own business, then the Babylonians are going to come in and do it for them. So we see in Europe, and it's definitely coming to America, that the civil authorities, you know, every district attorney who wants to make a name for herself is going to be just pillorying the church's administration. And so the church administratively will get a lot smaller, as Pope Benedict said. But that's a good thing. You know, you know it's like they asked Pope Benedict, well, how's the church doing? Oh, the church is doing great. It's like healthier than it's ever been. Really? Are you kidding? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's just a lot smaller than most people think it is. Uh, yes? Um, so thank you for, uh, this is the first time I've ever heard Tradere. Yeah. That is the two meetings. That's yes. very powerful. I thank you. really reread and pray on that. And, and I'm blessed to be part of a community in Camden that has both adoration and beauty as its basis. I mean, I, I, I'm just blown away. Now I know why it's so important. Yeah. Speaking for myself, a number of my friends, for my grandchildren, for the young women that surround me, yeah. we don't know what to do in right. this church that does not have women representation as priests and as leaders, and I'm talking about bishops, and and it it is it just makes no sense, and I think yeah. it could really make for sure. a better church. Okay, so um, back earlier when we were talking about an area that was just the realm of theological speculation, now here we have to say uh, de fide, that is like we cannot be Catholic and believe, I want to say something that might be difficult to hear, but we cannot be Catholic and believe that a woman should be a priest. It's impossible. It's, it's not only impossible because... Mary, Mary Magdalene was told. She was the first sure. person who was told well, to so spread we, the news. We need to make a distinction. Every person is called to but be priest, a woman, prophet, a and king. specific woman who had a name. Ma'am. She had a name. She does, and her name is Mary. Mary. And I named my first daughter after That's her. That's right. Absolutely. And she received communion from the hands of the beloved disciple. She received communion from St. John. And we can't imagine 
we can't imagine and we don't want to even try to imagine that happening the other way around. Hang, hang on, you, please. There are people like me Ma'am. who believe that it can, and I am a good practicing Catholic. Ma'am, I, no, ma'am, I'm not going to doubt. I don't know you. I don't know your heart. But I know that uh, there, is, there is an order of things. And women are the crowning point of creation. It's woman who crushes the head of Satan. It's woman who gives her entire flesh to Christ and follows him to his cross. It's woman whose heart is pierced. Mary is, in the sense, a co-redemptrix. She is a queen mother. She is a queen mother. And she is, she is greater in dignity and glory than all of the saints combined. Than all of the saints combined. She is, her, her happiness in heaven is greater than all the saints combined. But her happiness is rooted in the fiat and this fiat may it be done to me according to thy word counters the non-serviat uttered by satan at the beginning of time echoing throughout time even in our church today this disposition of anchila of handmaiden of handmaiden is what characterizes feminine sanctity and 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 that's beautiful that's beautiful i don't want to imagine mary magdalene offering mass for saint john the beloved and frankly i don't want to imagine you imagine you know if like a crazy gunman or something came in this door right now and imagine a church in which all the women were expected to get up and take bullets for all of us. It would not be beautiful. Because women are the bearers of life. And you don't send your bearers of life into battle. You protect them. You protect them with everything. Yes. Well, that's good, but remember, let me just caution you and there. Let, are not like, let, let, and you don't want to ma'am, voice, ma'am. But I am a I welcome your voice, but let me caution you there because the greatest prophet in the history of the church, his name was John the Baptist, and they said to him, "Are you the Messiah?" He says, "No." He says, "Are you the one who is to come?" No. Elijah, no. Are you the prophet? And he says, "No." Same thing with Elijah. Every prophet who is a true prophet, sort of the secret prophecy 101, if you're interested, 
You start by denying that you're a prophet. You die with that. Yes. Yeah. And you back away from that because I, I suppose that's a topic we can talk about in the next Thursday. Yeah. Um, however, I guess just sitting here, and, and maybe it's a function of my going to a Latin mass parish, uh, but it seems to me that the church has turned off a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of adoration, in terms of beauty, and in terms of tradition. Yes. They are things like that yes. Yes, yes. And you see at your parish, how many young families are there? Many. Bursting at the seams. Bursting at the seams. Right. I know. I know. I understand. I understand. I understand. Yeah. There is a conflict, and some of it, but I would say the minority of that conflict is cultural. Like the culture is hostile to the tradition of the church. But that's always been the case. I would say more of it, more of it is deliberate neglect, apostasy, and organized. Like, how does every, you know, church, every parish throughout the country get the idea to put the, like, the same exact felt banner up on the altar for confirmation? It's like, who's writing this playbook? Everybody's singing out of the same weird hymnal. It's like, who, okay, who's figuring all this stuff out? And all the parishes that are, that are treating the liturgy in this way, there's no young people, there's no vocations, it's dead wood. And so this can't be just coincidental, right? It's really rooted in, that's why we're talking about this today, it's rooted in an apostolic betrayal. But I'm not going to be the guy who says, oh, this bishop and that bishop is doing, you know, rabble, 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 down with them, angry letter, blog post. No, because that's not going to get anything done. That's just going to scandalize more. What are we going to do? Like you said, you found a, you found a good parish to attach yourself to. You know, I used to think I'm going to be in that felt banner parish. I'm going to be there because I'm, I'm the only one that's there. And if I weren't there, nobody else would be. And I'm fighting a good fight. And then I had kids, and I realized that the liturgy next to my marriage was the most educative thing in their lives. So we, we did. We, went, we insulated ourselves. We went to a parish probably a lot like yours. It's not perfect. People are weirdos. They drive big white vans. I don't have a big white van, you know, but overall it's great. I, I learned something at the homilies every day. There's worship. Nobody's clapping. Nobody's trying to stand up and greet me before Mass starts. But we have tons of friends. We greet each other organically, like friends do. Uh, so, you know, I would say this. It might give you hope. Um, death is a great purifier of the church. And there is a generational paradigm swing happening right now and it's beautiful to watch it's beautiful to watch yes I just want to piggyback on this uh, line of thought a little bit there are a lot of people here who are talking about you I'm a 26 year old convert um, you're looking at it uh, the beauty of the church the beauty of the tradition of the church is what brought me into the church 
Amen. Amen. A lot of people are going to tell you that bringing a drum kit into the sanctuary is going to get people like me to come, but they're wrong. They're not coming. Amen. Speak it, brother. Amen. Amen. Amen, brother. I preach it. Preach it. So that's right. You know, it, yeah, and it's like beauty is attractive. That's what I'm going to talk about my next breakout session. Beauty is attractive. And, uh, you know, it's like if you were walking, we're in a casino right now, if you were walking through the Harrah's floor at 3 a.m. and there was like that side band on the B stage playing at cocktail hour, like, and they were playing a bossa nova jam, you know, that might at best elicit a chuckle or a cringe. Is that what we want to be playing as we receive communion? So as laity, you know, it's one of these to, John says to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. There is a time to speak up. And you have every right in the name of God because there's that one guy at your parish who's like, the youth want drums and guitar at Mass, right? It says the 55-year-old man. And the father says, really? Well, nobody else is telling me that, but you know, you're the guy that's on every committee. You're on the parish council. You lead the band, and you put your heart into it. You're everywhere in the parish except for the Adoration Chapel. You donate lots of money. So go ahead, run, run the band. And there's no kit. There's no youth in the parish. Where'd they go? Oh, we need more drums, guitar. Let's add a fog machine. Let's make the drum kit bigger. Make one of those gongs there, like they had in the '60s, you know. Um, and they just keep leaving. So, as as lay people right now, how can we directly restore things? We can demand Eucharistic reverence. We can demand liturgical reverence, and do so in the name of what? Of diversity. Why does every Mass have a guitar here? Like, can we get, how about a little more diversity? Let's get a scola in for one of these Masses. Diversity, right? Okay, so you can be cunning as sheep, meek as doves. Let's pray, and we got to wrap it up. If anybody wants to discuss more, yes, please. Sure, yes, last question. Yeah. Yeah. But in the area of bringing youth back to into the church and going to adoration, you speak on authenticity. Yes. 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 There's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, she says, where is the beauty in the victimization in the church? And I want to be very clear. The sex abuse crisis that is unfolding right now, the causes are multifarious. We can, we can talk about those all day long. But what is the result? Remember this filial, fraternal adoration between John and our Lord that characterizes the faithful's relationship to God, right? Sexual abuse between clergy and minors is a demonic parody of that very friendship. Is a demonic parody. 
Just like abortion is a demonic parody of the Holy Eucharist. This is my body. This is my body. It's the same words. It's tradere, tradere, tradition, betrayal. Holy friendship, sex abuse. It's a demonic parody. And Christ is thirsting for us in his saving hour. Like right now, I'm not, I'm not saying that just generally. Like right now, he's thirsting for us to unite ourselves, share his wounds. And these wounds, right, in the least of these, they will translate to glory as all wounds united to his cross do. Okay? So we could talk more, but let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Son of Mary, we beg you, Lord, to unite us, to transform us, to inspire us, to continually convert us. Lord, help us to fall more deeply and deeply in love with you that we might rest in your bosom and so rest with the Father that you may be made known to all the nations, to all the peoples. Take us, Lord, to the Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Veritas is sponsored by St. Joseph Morello Parish in Granite Bay, California, and St. Mel Parish in Fair Oaks, California. Learn more at catholicveritas.com.